Welcome to Scotus Pod. I am your co-host, Ian Taranji. I'm here with New York appellate lawyer, Sanford Hausler. Sandy, how are you doing? I'm doing just great. Awesome, awesome. So we are coming to you from the Hardcast Media Studios here in beautiful DuPont Circle, Washington, D.C., on the first Monday in October, for those who don't know. It's a special day in SCOTUS land. This is the beginning of the new Supreme Court term. So this is an, ex an extra treat, Sandy, that we ha to ha get to have you here in studio. Normally, I think you're going to be connecting with us from New York by phone, uh, but it's great to have you here in D.C. It's great to be here, and yeah. it was great to be at the Supreme Court today. Yeah, t uh, we'll, 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 get, we'll get into that in a little in, in just a minute, because I definitely want to hear about your experiences, and I'm sure our one or two listeners that we have will want to hear about that as well. I want to first of all thank Panama behind the scenes here for the production, and Molly at Hardcast for facilitating this podcast, and, and generally for providing voices to a lot of people uh, in this area who otherwise would not have a voice. Um, so what is this? This is SCOTUS Pod, obviously. Uh, you know, look, there's no shortage of really excellent Supreme Court podcasts out there. And, you know, I hope that, that this is going to be part of that constellation, that firmament of, of, of great talk and analysis around the court, because it is obviously, it's a big part of our lives. I think a lot of people don't think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, but I do. It has, well, <laughs> 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 you, and I, you and I both do. You and I both do. A lot of people do not. Uh, but we want to be able to hopefully demystify a little bit of what goes on at the court and, you know, really get into, dig into some good solid analysis on cases, on, on grants of certiorari, which is basically cases that the court is going to hear. Um, some of the personalities, some of the bigger issues that, that may not be limited to one case in particular, but may span several cases. Um, you know, without going into cliche territory here, I mean, the independent rule of law, it's a pillar of our democracy. And the Supreme Court is obviously a co-equal branch in our federal government. So I think it's, you know, I think it's really important to be able to talk about these things. And, and like I said, I hope we can demystify some of what goes on at the court for you here with some good solid analysis. What so do you think, Sandy? So let's talk. Let's do it. Let's do it. So you were at the Supreme Court today, the first Monday of October, uh, first day of the new term. Tell us a little bit about well, I will how say that, how that all works. Something very new happened at the court today. Last week, we heard that a new rule had been enacted that the justices will allow an attorney to speak for about two minutes without any questions before they start before they jump in for the kill. Well, as an appellate lawyer, why is that important? Well, sometimes it's very hard to get right to the crux of your of your argument mm -hmm. and you want to get there are things that you want to get before the court right away and very often the judges ask questions and you just never get that opportunity now the questions are very important no doubt about it and believe me there were plenty of questions today but each each uh, lawyer had a, had an opportunity to say what he needed to say at the beginning yeah yeah i think it's interesting because you get hot benches cold benches and i obviously don't have the same uh, appellate advocacy experience that you do. Mine is, is a little more limited, but um, from everything that I know, you can have cases where, or an oral argument where a litigant stands up there and, and the second that light goes on, 
he's getting peppered with questions. And they usually go in with an outline of this is what I want to talk about. These are the points I want to make. Here's our, my introductory statement. And, and uh, you know, litigants have to be light on their feet during oral argument because you have to be able to answer questions. You always want to respect the judges, but, but you got to get back to your, you know, your points. Well, it's, it's very funny. If you, if you go on Oyez and listen to court, court arguments from, I don't know, 50s and 60s, maybe even early 70s, you won't find the kind of questioning that you've had since uh, Justice Scalia had joined the court. Um, it, it was much more laid back. There was much more, it was much, more, it was, there was much more lawyer-led discussion. The lawyer would talk, and occasionally a question would come up, and it, would, it, was, it was much more laid back. But ever since Justice Scalia, he that's one thing he definitely changed at the court, mm -hmm. the way oral argument is, is uh, heard and done and conducted. So you think it's, it's personality-driven? Well, I don't know if it's personality-driven, but once Justice, uh, once Justice Scalia started doing it, yeah. everybody followed suit. Well, except for Justice Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> except for Justice Thomas, who, by the way, was not in court today. He is ill, and I'd like to wish him a full and quick recovery. Indeed Hope to have him back do. on the bench later this week, maybe, uh, certainly by next week. On behalf of SCOTUS Pod, I think we can all uh, send Justice Clarence Thomas our best wishes for speedy recovery. I hope that uh, his health is, is, is good and that he's back on the court in no time. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that that rule is, is interesting, and I wonder, I mean, obviously, my impression of oral arguments before most appellate courts is that oral arguments don't sway too many judges away from sort of the decision that they already have in their mind after reading all of the briefing. Like, just, justices and appellate judges don't get on the bench and say, okay, tell me what this case is about. They have read volumes and volumes and volumes of briefs at the circuit court level. They have probably reviewed trial transcripts. Um, their clerks have worked their things over. They're, they get on the bench with a pretty good idea how they're going to judge. Do you get a sense, Sandy, that justices at the Supreme Court are swayed by oral argument? Well, I'm not sure if they're swayed, but they do have issues that they want explained to them and find out what the advocates have to say about these issues. Mm -hmm. And a lot, I think a lot of the argument is not so much being swayed, but actually putting out their own thoughts to their colleagues. Because usually, they don't, except in conference, they, you don't get that until there's a written decision. Mm -hmm. This is yet another way that which they can sort of argue among themselves. Yeah. Although I didn't really see that today. I didn't see a lot of argument. Um, it was interesting. The, there were two. There were three cases heard today. Two of which were heard this morning, and one this afternoon. I only was able to attend the uh, the morning morning uh, cases because I had to be here to. Uh, we're Scotus potting. Right to Scotus pod, but um, the first case was Kaler versus Kansas, and that involved uh, the issue of whether a state can, in essence, abolish the insanity defense under the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendment, and. That's the issue that they put in their brief. It wasn't exactly so so cut and dry. They didn't, the, the, no one actually uh, abolished the insanity defense, but it was 
changed in, in the way it, was, way it was utilized. So we're talking about cases in federal court, yes, not in state court. Correct. And well, what's no, the, actually, it, it was in state. That's wrong. It's it it in state court, but, it, but it's come up to the federal to the to the Supreme Court. Gotcha, gotcha. From which do you recall? Kansas. From, from Kansas. Okay. Interesting. It's an interesting hypothetical that Justice uh, Breyer raised. He, it wasn't so much a hypothetical, but he was saying, under the Kansas law, let's assume that there are these two guys, both of them are insane, absolutely insane. They're both being, being tried for murder. And in one case, the guy says, yes, I killed this person, but I thought, it was, I thought he was a dog. Mm-hmm. And okay. that person would, under the Kansas law, would be exempt from, from punishment as okay. being insane. However, if the other guy says, yes, I killed the person, but the dog told me to do it, <laughs> he would be liable. He would be, uh, he, could, he could be, and he was trying to find out why there's a difference in those two cases. And really, there, there was no adequate, there was no real reason for mm-hmm. it. They could, he was unable to get anything out from any of the advocates. Obviously, the adv- the advocates who were uh, for for uh, Kaler were, were able to say, "You're absolutely right. There is no reason because that that, that suited their uh, their their case." Yeah. But yeah. the lawyers, for, the lawyer for Kansas, had a hard hard time with with uh, ju- with the justice. Interesting. That's an interesting, and that's an interesting hypothetical as well. And I'm not surprised that uh, that. The advocate was unable to come up with a suitable point of distinction. The insanity defense, obviously, is a way to get out of being punished by the legal system. In essence, I don't know what the magic phrase is that they usually use state to state, but that you cannot appreciate the gravity of the offense or something like that. I mean, it's set the standard for invoking the insanity defense. No, I can't predict how that case is going to go. I listened to the arguments pr- pretty closely, yeah. and it's it's hard to tell. I mean, I could see Gorsuch actually siding with liberals on this one from the questions he asked, but of course, you know, the questions he asked may mean nothing as to what his really inner inner thoughts are. Yeah, um, and I I'm, I I'm not exactly sure how uh, the chief is is going. Mm-hmm. I don't know which mm-hmm. way he was go- he was going. So, how this case will turn out, we'll just have to sit and wait and see. And what what was the other case the, that you heard the other this morning? Case was. Peter versus Northwest Inc., and that is was a patent case, but it had to deal with whether attorneys' fees are included under the term expenses under 35 U.S.C. 148. This is qu- quite interesting because for 150 years or 125 years or whatever, uh, this, the the country has been the the Patent and Trademark Office has been operating as if there. They've, 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 they have not been seeking attorney's fees under this statute. They say now that they had always been entitled to, but they never did. Hmm. And the, the statute says that there are two ways of, of uh, there, there are two ways of appealing from a uh, denial of a patent application. The first is you go to the federal circuit right. and you appeal it. Mm-hmm. The second is you go to district court and bring an action against the uh, patent trade PTO. Yeah, the PTO. Yeah. And if you do that, there's a, there's a provision that says that uh, the PTO is entitled to its expenses. Mm-hmm. 
So the question is whether those expenses include the salaries that are being paid to the, the PTO lawyers. That'll be an interesting one. That will certainly be an interesting one. I yeah. can tell you as, as someone who has done my fair share of patent litigation, um, not patent prosecution at the PTO, which is the process of actually obtaining a patent, writing a patent and writing all the claims, but my involvement has been like with litigating the actual patents and whether something infringes on, a, on an existing patent or not. Um, so all, that is all very interesting for me, certainly, and I'm gonna looking forward to reading that opinion when it comes out. Yeah, um, that one seemed to uh, seemed to be going more towards a, f a finding that uh, legal legal fees are not expenses but from the say, government. Yeah, from was that was that a point of distinction that the, that the justices made? The fact that it was government as opposed to there were a lot of there were a lot of points they made. I, I think the a big point was the fact that the government never took that position for over 100 years. Yeah. That was yeah. real a real big decision and the uh, lawyer for the uh, government had to acknowledge that that was not uh, the strongest point of their case. Mm -hmm. Well, very cool. Very cool. And it all sounds awesome and um, yeah, I haven't been back to the Supreme Court since I was in law school and I actually really need to go and uh, maybe this term maybe this term I will do that. So that's the kind of stuff that we're going to get here on Scotus Pod. We're going to be digging in. Um, you know, we certainly want as much listener feedback. Please, please, please interact with us. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever. We're Scotus Pod on Twitter. We're at Scotus Pod on Twitter. Uh, you can search Scotus Pod on Facebook, um, and you know, every once so often we check our email, scotuspod at gmail.com. That is scotuspod at gmail.com. Um, for the rest of this show today, we've got a couple of uh, interesting things. The first thing we were going to be, uh, I don't know if it's going to be in this next segment or the segment after, but we're going to be speaking with uh, law professor Nancy Martyr. She was a clerk um, on the U.S. Supreme Court. She clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens, who, as many people know, passed away um, very recently. And so a lot of the uh, sort of legacy building uh, uh, and 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 promulgation has has fallen to his former clerks and so we're going to be we're overjoyed to have Nancy joining us to give us some of her personal recollections on Justice Stevens. I will say that uh, Justice Stevens' death was mentioned at the Supreme Court today yeah. and uh, the chief uh, gave very warm thoughts of, of him and his and and the entire court and how important he had been to the court as an institution how long he'd been there mm -hmm. and um, it was it was it was very nice and very yeah. appropriate, I would say. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. We're also going to be talking about a couple of cases from last term, uh, the Gamble case, which dealt with je double jeopardy, but which also brought in other issues of stare decisis and kind of we can talk a little bit about where the court's going. And then I want to talk about kind of what I call some uh, of the court's democracy cases from the last term, the census case, um, which was about whether this, the, the census was going to include a question about citizenship, and then the partisan gerrymandering case, Rucho v. Common Cause. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, and since we do have, I'm told, important elections coming up next year, uh, it's going to be it's going to be really interesting stuff. So um, we're going to take a quick short break, and then we're going to get Nancy Martyr on the line and talk to her. 
I would like to welcome Nancy Martyr to the Muscotus Pod. Nancy is a professor of law at Chicago Kent College of Law, where she serves as the director of the Justice John Paul Stevens Jury Center and the co-director of the Institute for Law and the Humanities. She's a graduate of Yale Law School, where she served as articles editor on the Yale Law Journal. She practiced in the litigation department of Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, and has clerked at all levels of the, of the federal courts. In the district court with uh, Judge Leonard B. Sand in the Southern District of New York, at the circuit level with Circuit Judge William A. Norris of the Ninth Circuit, and uh, most important for our purposes, she was a, a clerk for Justice John Paul Stevens during the 1990 and 1991 terms. Um, welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Um, I wondered if you could tell us something about uh, the justice, what, what were your feelings about him over the, the two years that you worked with him? Uh, well, I knew it was such a great job when I started uh, that I asked at the end of the year if I could stay for a second year uh, because I had uh, clerked, uh, as you mentioned, at different levels. I had worked um, in private practice and I knew that uh, working with Justice Stevens uh, was an amazing experience, and I would not find a similar experience. So I knew from the very beginning that it was going to be uh, a very special time. Hi, Nancy. This is Ian. Um, and again, thank you, thank you, thank you for 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 joining us. I kind of wanted to get. Um, Sense of Justice Stevens, the man. Obviously, you spent a lot of time with him in chambers, I imagine, discussing cases. But, you know, kind of what was he like outside of the, the, the court setting? Well, the thing that's so striking when you meet him is that he's a very modest, unassuming person. Uh, and uh, I went in to the interview, for example, uh, very nervous because I had never met a Supreme Court justice before, <laughs> and it's an imposing building, and he had chambers with an imposing desk, and yet uh, when you uh, talk to him, he's very easy to talk to and uh, very um, uh, unassuming demeanor, and so that immediately puts people at ease, I think, and you uh, can have a... a you can connect on a very personal level. And then, of course, he was uh, super smart. And so uh, discussions were always uh, fascinating. And uh, Justice Stevens also liked talking about things, whether it's cases or sports. Um, and he ran a very efficient chamber so that uh, the clerks talked about everything rather than writing uh, lengthy bench memos or other forms of um, research memoranda. The idea was you just needed to have a conversation and uh, you would see uh, which way uh, his thinking was going and which way you were going. And because he had this very unassuming manner, it was very easy if you disagreed or had a slightly different take on a case, you felt perfectly comfortable uh, introducing that into the conversation. Now, I know that uh, Justice Stevens did not participate in the cert pool. Um, what was the significance of that? Uh, sorry, uh, 
are you able to repeat the question? It's sure. a little, it, it broke up a little. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, That's much better. I said Justice, it's, it's known that Justice Stevens did not participate in the cert pool, and I was wondering what uh, the significance of that was. Do all together. I, I didn't, you didn't hear? Okay. Um, Justice Stevens did not participate in the cert pool, and I was wondering what the significance of that was. Why? why? Uh, well, one reason, uh, there were several reasons he did not do it. Uh, one is he thought it was very useful that not all the justices participate in the cert pool uh, because you have just one law clerk writing and researching uh, for a cert petition if you're part of the cert pool. And so he thought while that was the cert pool was you know, a fine thing to do, that it was important to have other points of view. And so uh, not all of the justices in his view should belong to the cert pool. He also thought that, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, sometimes it was just easier for him to understand uh, what was going on in the cert petition just by having a brief conversation with his clerks. Uh, so again, he didn't need a lengthy research memo. And the way he set it up, it actually worked very well uh, for us as well as for him. Uh, the clerks, uh, we would sign up all of the cert petitions and we would read them. And if there were ones that we thought uh, were that he should consider putting on the discuss list at the, so that the conference, the justices would discuss that petition, um, we would write like a one to two page memo uh, telling him what we thought the issues were and why it was cert worthy. And then if we had questions about other cert petitions, we could just ask him to read the cert petition. So it was, he, that way we could really tailor um, uh, our reading to what we knew he was looking for, what kinds of cases like a circuit split he thought we should really uh, point out, things like that. So it was, it allowed him to get um, quick feedback that was all that he needed uh, to understand what the issue is about and allowed us to just talk to him or just have him read the cert petition if necessary. So from an institutional point of view, he thought it was good that he not belong to the cert pool. And then from a, a chamber's perspective and where he wanted us to spend time, uh, he thought it was good that we not belong. So you guys divvied up all of the cert petitions that came in and reviewed them all? That's right. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> you, you can imagine yeah. uh, that this was a very uh, labor-intensive effort. And we all start at different points in the summer. Mm -hmm. And I was the first clerk in of my term uh, to start. And so uh, the stack of cert petitions was delivered to my desk. <laughs> and in the beginning of the summer, it took me so long to go through the cert petition that I thought, how could I possibly add other responsibilities to my job uh, in addition to these cert petitions? You know, yeah, right. how would I be able to uh, read briefs for uh, cases and work on opinions and deal with uh, 
death penalty uh, stay applications and other emergency applications. And the thing is, you do learn to go through the petitions more quickly and you learn what to look for, what to focus on. So you become uh, quicker and more effective at the job. But in the beginning, it's really daunting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us, were there any opinions that you helped uh, either draft or, or um, uh, were, there, were, there, were there any cases that, that stick out in your memory from your time on the court? Uh, well, as I mentioned, I, I'm not going to talk about which cases I worked on mm-hmm. uh, because Justice Stevens' view is that while he can reveal uh, which cases particular law clerks worked on, uh, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, all of the opinions are, are his opinions right. and uh, we are uh, the background. And I, I think that's as it, as it should be. Um, but there, there were lots of interesting cases. And I was uh, before the interview, I was just looking at uh, the two volumes we put together, the law clerks of the cases from the term. And I have two volumes for my two terms. And what's amazing is that as I look through the table of contents, I realize uh, that I still remember these cases and, you know, which clerk worked on which case and, you know, what, what at least the case was about. Um, and what is an, here's a, another little tidbit that's amazing about Justice Stevens. Uh, what he was able to do, he had an amazing memory and he could go up to the U.S. reports and just pick out the volume and the page of the case he was looking for uh, without, you know, Lexis or Westlaw Mm. or anything like that. Uh, So I was just thinking I could do this for my two terms, but he could do it for, you know, the 34 terms that he was there. Uh, So uh, he really had a prodigious memory. Um, But like one of the cases uh, that came up when, during my first term and, uh, it's one that, um, you know, you'll, you'll remember it's uh, Planned Parenthood against Casey. Mm-hmm. And what was significant about that case was we thought it signaled uh, the death knell of Roe against Wade. And just to show you how unpredictable uh, cases are, so we were so sure that this was the end. And we had no idea that um, three chambers were working together, uh, you know, O'Connor and Souter, um, and was Kennedy. it Kennedy? Kennedy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who ended up having a decision that said, uh, you know, we think because of stare decisis, it's important that uh, Roe v. Wade remain, you know, continue. Uh, we had no idea about that um, in our chambers, either the law clerks or justices. So the three chambers that participated uh, really uh, kept it under wraps. And it shows you, or it showed me at the time, that from the outside, these things always look like they're so predictable. Mm-hmm. But on the inside, they, re- they really aren't all the time. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Now, last week, uh, you had sent me an email um, telling me about a case that... Uh, that uh, justice worked on, actually in a dissent, West Virginia University Hospitals versus Casey, 
um, which you found sort of emblematic of his approach to uh, judging with respect to uh, statutory interpretation. Would you uh, care to talk about that a little? Sure. Um, yeah, I think it's a great example of a case, while it didn't attract a huge amount of attention, it, it really stood out in my mind for uh, the way that Justice Stevens approached uh, statutory interpretation. So this was a case uh, that raised the question whether uh, the fees for expert witnesses, uh, whether the winning plaintiff could uh, get those fees under uh, statute 42 U.S.C. section 1988 that allowed for uh, prevailing plaintiffs to get attorney's fees. So in other words, the statute provided for attorney's fees, but if you had to use expert witnesses, uh, and they were integral to the case uh, and saved lawyers' time, uh, would they be able to be reimbursed under the rubric of attorney's fees? And the court, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, said no. Said if Congress wanted to include expert witness fees, uh, it would have added that language, and in fact, it had done so in other statutes. And Justice Stevens looked at this case and went back to the legislative history and tried to figure out what was the purpose, the broad overarching purpose behind Congress's provision of attorney's fees in these kinds of cases. And it was to encourage uh, private attorneys general to take these kinds of cases to uh, protect uh, civil rights and if expert witness fees are necessary uh, to bringing such cases and they save lawyers time, then he thought um, the statute suggested that they should be included. And in fact, there was a, another, uh, an earlier case in which the court had said that paralegal's time uh, could be included under attorney's fees. Uh, so what I liked about Justice Stevens' approach is that he always tried to think uh, and use the legislative history to consider what was the broad purpose that Congress was trying to achieve here. And uh, he thought, you know, by going through the legislative history, he identified the broad purpose and then that it was up to the court to interpret the statute in a way that effectuated that broad purpose. Um, the other uh, point that the other thing that I like about uh, Justice Stevens' opinions is, and that he was unique on the court at least in that time uh, is that he wrote his own first draft of opinions. Uh, the other justices would write their own first draft and then give it to a law clerk uh, to revise and to fill out with footnotes. And one of the reasons that you really can appreciate uh, that Justice Stevens wrote this is that he used phrases and language uh, that a law clerk uh, would not use, would not, <laughs> would not think of to use. And, you know, so his, his voice uh, really came through in his opinions. And uh, I'll just give you the phrase um, that, that shows this. Uh, he wrote, on those occasions, however, when the court has put on its thick grammarian spectacle, and ignored the available evidence. 
um, the thick grammarian spectacles. <laughs> you know, that's definitely yeah. <laughs> a, a Justice Stevens phrase. And in fact, at the time when Linda Greenhouse covered that case in the New York Times and she, when she was the Supreme Court um, reporter, mm-hmm. uh, I remember that phrase appearing in her article. And it stands out because, you know, that's just so much his voice. That is great. That is great. Nancy, I've got one last question for you, um, kind of like a, a broad overview. I think that the, the, the general perception on the outside of Justice Stevens was that he was a great liberal lion. I mean, to the extent that, you know, you apply the left-right lens to a lot of Supreme Court decisions. But I have a feeling that Justice Stevens would not have seen himself the same way. Um, do you think that's correct? And how do you think he saw his, his, his politics, um, affecting or not affecting his, his decision-making? Yeah. I mean, he certainly didn't, did not see himself that way. Uh, he thought he came on the bench, you know, he was a Republican, um, at least at the time when he was appointed, and by, by he, President Ford. By President Ford. Uh, the only appointment that Ford got to make, but the thing that President Ford was most proud of uh, in his entire administration. Um, and so Justice Stevens thought he came to the court as a moderate Republican. And he th- thought that he did not change, you know, that he thought the court changed around him. And I think there's there's some truth to that, you know, that the the appointment, subsequent appointments, the justices who came on were more conservative than the justices they replaced. Uh, I think he was right to some extent that the court did change around him. But I also think that Justice Stevens was a lifelong learner and a student. And so he did, you know, he did change over time on issues mm-hmm. and you can see that in some of his opinions. Uh, and he was always open to learning new things. And so I think in that sense, uh, there probably was some evolution as well. And I also think that he thought a lot about the institution of the Supreme court and, its practices, its traditions, its norms, and he worked hard to preserve those. He thought they had a lot of value. Uh, So as uh, things changed on the court because of new appointments, I think he also um, tried to maintain those traditions. And I I don't know that they're Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, but I think he took an institutional perspective, um, you know, what, what is important to the court. And those were the traditions and practices that he tried to pass on to uh, the new justices. And so in some ways, uh, from an institutional perspective, uh, he, was not, he was not trying to change things. He was actually trying to maintain uh, sort of the, the traditions of the court. And I think that was a really important role to play. Well, that's interesting. A, a lot of what you're saying about Justice... A lot of what you're saying about Justice Stevens uh, is actually being said about the Chief Justice now, about his, about his concerns about uh, institutional perspective. 
Um, it's sort of a shame that Justice Stevens didn't get to be the Chief Justice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, I remember when he became the, the senior associate justice, and I asked him if it thought it would make any difference to him. He said no. Uh, but I also uh, thought that it would, and I thought that he would be able to use the role. And I believe that he did because he was very um, smart about who he assigned opinions to when he was on opposite sides with the chief justice. And so he got to assign the opinion. And he thought that if he assigned an opinion to a justice who was a little bit on the fence, if they actually wrote the opinion, they might feel more uh, connected to that that stance and hmm. less likely to change. And I think there's something to be said for that. So hmm. I think he was willing to forego assigning uh, great opinions to himself so that he could keep uh, the, the group together and keep uh, the votes there. And so I thought he really did an excellent job of using that senior associate position in ways that he might not have even envisioned for himself when before he assumed that role. Interesting and so, so smart, yeah. Well, well Nancy, we really appreciate you jo your joining us um, personally, and I'm sure all of our uh, listeners, however many there are. <laughs> Both um, of them. <laughs> well, <laughs> greatly appreciate uh, what, you, what you've had to say about Justice Stevens. Um, certainly, um, he's, to, to me personally, he's one of the most important justices of uh, the last half of the, the 20th century and the early, early 21st century. No doubt. Um, well, we hope to be able to call on you some sometime in the future, perhaps, when uh, a case comes down that uh, falls within your wheelhouse. Yes, and uh, I am always happy to talk about Justice Stevens. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you. All right, have a good day. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, Ian had said we wanted to talk about some of the cases from last term, and I will start off with Gamble versus United States. Yeah, which tell was, us about that. That was a case in which the court upheld the dual sovereign doctrine, which is a doctrine under which, relating to uh, double jeopardy, under under the dual dual sovereign doctrine, the um, each sovereign can prosecute a, a, a felon. Now, when you say each sovereign, you're talking about a Both state, the state and, and the, the federal, federal government. Right, right. Um, now, that case engendered a lot of discussion, not because of the ultimate result, which really wasn't a surprise because it had been the law for. A long time. What was the result in the in the case? Result was that it upheld the dual sovereign doctrine. So, so as was the case last year, this year, it's exactly the same. If if a state government prosecutes prosecutes a person, and either prevails or doesn't prevail, the federal government can still prosecute him, providing, of course, that it's a it's a violation of both federal and state law. Right. Uh, and even under the same operative set of facts? Even under the same operative set, set of facts. That's wow. what The reason this case is, has engendered discussion is because of a concurrence by Justice Thomas regarding stare decisis. Now explain what stare decisis is really briefly. 
Stare decisis is the uh, doctrine under which once a rule of law is enunciated in a case, it is followed continuously. You don't you don't change it unless there's a good reason for it. It's precedent, basically. It's precedent. It's, it's precedent. That's exactly what. And it when is. the Supreme Court speaks through its opinion. They're speaking not only to the the outcome in this particular case and controversy, but they're also giving guidance and instruction to the lower courts that this is how you should apply the law in these cases. Exactly, which is why uh, under the doctrine of stare decisis, cases are not overruled with great frequency. It happens, but it it doesn't happen as often as it might otherwise. And certainly not as much as Justice Thomas would have it. Yes, well, that's, that's us, for sure. Tell us about Justice Thomas's concurrence on Starry Decisis. Well, actually, first I'd like to just okay. tell the facts, yeah, yeah. which are, which are very simple. Facts are always important in these cases, and we shouldn't get ahead of that. Terrence Gamble, he was a, uh, he was a felon. He was found to have a firearm in his possession, which was a violation of both Alabama law, which is where he was from, and federal law. And he pleaded guilty to possessing a firearm as a felon in Alabama. And after he was sentenced, he was the feds decided to prosecute him under their uh, under their law. And Gamble claimed that this violated the double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment. And he moved to dismiss the indictment. Um, the district court denied his motion under the, the dual sovereign doctrine. And Gamble pleaded guilty under federal law as well, but he preserved his right to appeal from the double jeopardy issue. Hmm. Now, everybody who's ever taken a case, on, uh, a class on constitutional law, knows that under settled law, what happened with in, with Gamble was perfectly legal and constitutional, because Alabama and the United States are separate sovereigns, and that's been the law for over 170 years. Mm-hmm. But Gamble argued that the doctrine was wrong from its inception, based on founding era common law. And although the idea of parsing old English precedents makes my heart sing, <laughs> I'm a law geek after all. I'm not going to subject you to that. We're going to get some Blackwell intonations here. T- I don't today. know. Maybe we'll, maybe, you know, maybe we'll do a, a bonus episode for the Insomniacs. <laughs> but instead, I'm going to pass over all of Justice Alito's deathless prose and go straight to Justice Thomas's concurrence. <laughs> the juicy stuff. Yes. Well, Justice Thomas had, has a problem with stare decisis, and he, and he said this many times over the past few years, because it, he claims that it elevates demonstrably erroneous decisions over the text of the Constitution and over duly enacted federal law. And quite frankly, I'm not sure he's correct on that. Now, he, he says that there are a series of factors that, that a court looks at whether to, whether to apply stare decisis workability of the standard, antiquity of the precedent, reliance interest at stake, and whether whether the decision was well-reasoned. Can I have a, a, just a quick clarifying point, though? When he talks about whether a court should be bound by stare decisis, he's talking about the Supreme Court because the Fourth Circuit, the Third Circuit, the Second Circuit, all the federal circuits, all the district courts... They're bound. They're all bound by the Supreme Court. They don't get to choose. They don't get to go through this analysis of whether they're going to follow the Supreme Court's precedent. Correct. He's talking about the Supreme Court and whether it respects its own precedent. Though I, I could guess that it would apply to uh, lower courts if the issue has not been addressed by the Supreme Court. Well, sure. 
lower courts are always free. But where the issue is on all fours, you are at least, you know, you're supposed to be, the, the courts are supposed to be following Supreme Court precedent. Now, we've got this, we'll talk about it in a little bit, the Louisiana abortion case that's coming up this term. There's some question about whether stare decisis was, was followed there. But, um, I'm sorry, but keep going, keep going, Sandy. It's okay. <laughs> now, I'm not so sure that Justice Thomas is wrong. I mean, that, he, that, he's, that he's right, excuse me. I believe that all the justices think of stare decisis in, a, in the same manner when it's depending on what the case is. Obviously, everybody's up in arms about Justice Thomas's decision because everybody is thinking about Roe versus Wade. Right. right. But if we were talking about Citizens United, mm-hmm. or if we were talking about uh, Brown versus Board, which, yeah. of course, that case, is, I don't think there's any doubt that it's not going to be overturned. But saying that, that if there was if there was even a possibility of it, yeah, yeah, these are the c- cases that that uh, let the that I'll say liberals in quotation marks. I'm giving the air quotes sign. Yeah, um, think should be overturned. Mm-hmm. They feel the exact same way. It's wrong. These decisions are wrong, 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 and should be overturned. Sure. Citizens United is the perfect example of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and certainly a conservative would look at Roe versus Wade. I mean, there, there look, there are plenty of liberals who believe that it's a poorly reasoned opinion. I, I, I don't necessarily fall into that camp myself, um, but there's a lot of actually left of center legal scholarship that is very critical of the Roe v. Wade opinion. Um, so it seems like Justice Thomas is maybe telegraphing that he's willing to set aside certain precedents of prior Supreme Courts. Surprise, surprise. I mean, surprise, has, anybody, surprise. Th- has, has anybody, anybody who's been awake in the, in the last 20 years knows that Justice Thomas it wants to overturn Roe versus Wade? No doubt about Everybody that. Everybody knows that. No doubt about that. So listen, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, some cases that have uh, uh, are going to have some impacts on our democratic system, and in particular, elections and apportionment coming up. All right, and we're back. Welcome back to Scotus Pod, Sandy. Our first episode. We're 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 almost we almost brought it home. Uh, how do you feel? Feeling good? Feeling better than I did when we started. <laughs> uh, this is great. It, you know, this is not a, a visual medium, obviously, but, you know, Sandy, very buttoned up. His tie's not even loosened. He's got his full suit. He was at the Supreme Court this morning. Um, I'm kicking around in my red DC T-shirt <laughs> and jeans, even though I was in court this morning. I was, I was, I was well-dressed for court, uh, but as I like to say, one of the beauties of Having your own practices every day is casual day. <laughs> so um, this is a lot of fun. I'm really, really enjoying this and, and looking forward to a lot more episodes. And um, yeah, I think it's gonna I think it's gonna grow organically. Don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. So you know, obviously, we're the first day of the term. We don't have a lot of opinions to analyze, and and uh, you know, there there are some 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 cert decisions that that we can talk about. Um, but I want to 
talk about a couple of cases from the last term, and these were cases that did get did get a lot of popular play in the media, and I, I thought it was interesting to look at these cases together because they really um, kind of deal with foundational underpinnings of our democracy, and you know people are really starting to look deeply at issues of democracy and representative government, um, you know, in, in, in these days particularly. Uh, last term, we had a couple of cases. We had Department of Commerce versus New York, which is the census citizenship question case. Um, for those who aren't aware, the, the Department of Commerce, uh, well, the Census Bureau is part of the Department of Commerce, and uh, so Department of Commerce uh, intended to put a question on the upcoming census that's going to go out in 2020 um, that was going to ask people whether they were citizens of the United States, whether everyone in the household is, is a U.S. citizen. Um, and there was questions about whether that would result in undercounting. Um, the purpose of the census is to get an accurate count of people living in the United States. Uh, citizen, non-citizen, resident, non-resident. Um, and that census is important for a number of reasons. It, 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 it involves um, apportioning representatives by state. We have 435 representatives in the House, but how those 435 get apportioned, that's determined at, at the census. And states that lose population may lose representatives. States that gain population may gain representatives. What was the reason for that question? Well, <laughs> that's the $60,000 question indeed, and question that the, that, that the court wrestled with. Um, what the Commerce Department said was that the Department of Justice asked Commerce to include the question so that it could have that data to help it defend Voting Rights Act cases. Now, anybody who's following politics and knows the inner workings of this administration, knows that this Justice Department doesn't give a shit about the Voting Rights Act. Um, they've done everything they can to gut the Voting Rights Act. They don't, as far as I know, prosecute any Voting Rights Act cases. Um, a lot of voting laws that are pretty obviously discriminatory against minorities, people of color, and poor people, and the elderly in some cases. Um, the Justice Department is not challenging those laws. So it's, uh, it's fishy on its face. It does, it's not necessarily passing the smell test. And John Roberts wrote this opinion um, in which he enjoined the Department of Commerce from utilizing the citizenship question and did so basically because he didn't buy that rationale. He didn't buy that rationale, and a lot of the evidence indicated that that disclosed basis was not reality. Um, I mean, real talk, there the, the department was trying to scare off people, un particularly in undocumented communities, from participating in the census, which would dilute some of the representation in probably large urban areas like New York City, like Washington, D.C., like Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, places that President Trump doesn't, partic doesn't particularly care for. 
Um, what's interesting about that case is that Justice Roberts seemed to be saying, look, <laughs> if you want to ask this question, you're fine under the enumeration clause in the Constitution, which is the clause of the Constitution that says that there shall be a count every, you know, uh, on a, I think it's like on a regular basis, not, they don't specify every 10 years, I don't think, but um, Congress passed the Census Act and the court seemed to say, look, your question is fine under the Census Act. Where they got them under was the Administrative Procedures Act, where, which is where agency decisions have to have some kind of a basis for that, for that decision, for that action. And uh, the DOJ action, or the DOJ request, um, based on a lot of the evidence that was produced extraneously, um, the court found did not, did not pass muster. And I think it's interesting to look at that case alongside another case that got a lot of play last semester, the gerrymandering case, which is Rucho v. Common Cause. In that case, um, you know, Justice Kennedy had, had, uh, had sort of been signaling for years that, you know, he had problems with partisan gerrymandering, and it, but, but he had yet to see a, a workable, uh, a limited and precise standard that he thought would be workable for lower courts to apply. And so he said, you know, look, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that there is no standard, I'm just saying this standard isn't, isn't cutting it. Well, Justice Kennedy is not there any longer, and, and he's been replaced by Justice Kavanaugh, and I think a lot of folks saw that as open season on, on partisan gerrymandering, and indeed the court found on a 5-4 decision that uh, it was a non-justiciable political question, that the court wasn't going to wade into questions of partisan gerrymandering. Oh, a political question, so to speak. A political question, yeah, non-justiciable as, non as a political question. Frankenfurter's monster. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, you know, it basically kind of talks about, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Justice Roberts is, is, is talking about how the Constitution lays out to the states the authority to run elections within their, the, the states and, and that the solution to partisan gerrymandering is to elect people who will not gerrymander in the way that you do not want it to be gerrymandered. Um, to me, that seems to betray a fundamental flaw in, in the analysis, which is that if something is distorting the electoral process, it seems to me that the, the remedy to that distortion is not vote for people who will not distort the process. If the process is being distorted, it's in all likelihood being distorted for people who are already there, and it's more a situation of entrenching power than it is usurping power. Yeah, because the, the, the two states in which cases came together for this Rucho v. Common Cause case. So we have North Carolina, um, which is heavily partisan gerrymandered in favor of Republicans, despite the fact that it's much closer to a 50-50 state than it is the way um, either, either the state legislative house, which, is, which would be a matter of North Carolina law, but more importantly for the Supreme Court's purposes, the, the representatives, congressional representatives from the state of North Carolina uh, if you look at the, 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 the percentage of votes, Democrat v. Republican, and then you look at the number of seats, Democrat v. Republican, there's definitely a, a, a skew. But the second state that, 
that was also part of Rucho v. Common Cause was Maryland, which is partisan gerrymandered in favor of Democrats. So I think when you look at these two cases together, it seems to me like the court is taking a very hands-off approach. Um, certainly in the census case, Justice Roberts said, this goes too far. <laughs> you, you, you have essentially invented out of whole cloth uh, uh, some legitimate sounding reason for the fact that he, he doesn't say because you have nefarious intent, but I read it as <laughs> nefarious. <laughs> I read it as nefarious intent and, and that Justice Roberts said, look, you basically have to lie better, you know, uh, uh, the Department of Commerce case, I think if you're going to sum that one up, it's the court saying to the government, lie better. And the gerrymandering case, the court seems to be saying to state governments, gerrymander better. Um, and, and, and I think that that's, you know, Justice Kagan had a, had, had a dissent in, in the gerrymandering case that I thought was very pointed. Um, you know, she says that, 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 uh, uh, the practices that imperil the system of government, uh, you know, it's the court's role to defend that foundation, uh, the foundation of that system, which is free and fair elections. And so she seems to be indicating that states that too heavily gerrymander from a partisan basis uh, are not engaged in free and fair elections. Well, that's always been the case. I mean, in, in the uh, one man, one, one person vote, or yeah. one person, one uh, one. Yeah, one, one man, one, one vote. One man, one vote. Yeah, cases. There was a situation where if the court didn't do anything, nothing would get done. Sure, sure. And uh, and 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 Robert states in this case, he says, "Look, the notion of each vote carrying equal weight, which is the foundation of the one man, one vote principle, um, that it does, just doesn't extend to political parties, uh, because certainly I think the court could come up with a workable system, could accept a workable system." Um, and you're right, there all has always been partisan gerrymandering. I mean, it, 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 the name itself comes from, who is it, Elbridge Jerry, who was, like, yeah. I think, a New York City I think commissioner. He, I think his name was pronounced Gary, so some people say uh, it should be gerrymandering, but yeah. tough. Indeed, indeed. So it, to me, it's, it seems like the court is saying, we're going to take a very hands-off approach on electoral politics, which seems to me the, the wrong time to be retreating from, from that, that foundational role that Justice Kagan talked about. I don't know. What do you think, Sammy? Well, I, I, I agree. I mean, we are, we are in a, a very dangerous political situation now. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, all you have to do is look at the news. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we're on the path to impeachment. I, I would be Surprised if he does not, if if Trump does not is not impeached within you know next few months, and before the start of twenty twenty, probably yeah, yeah, probably yeah, I would think so, and you know it begs the question: what 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 of those issues are going to work their way up the chain to the Supreme Court? Subpoenas, congressional discovery, mm -hmm. all of that stuff could be on the court's lap potentially this term, potentially. I mean, I, I, w I would say almost inevitably. Yeah, yeah. Especially in, in light of the fact that uh, the uh, Trump's Justice Department 
likes to go straight to the Supreme Court, doesn't like to even bother with the in, uh, the uh, <laughs> lower courts. It wants to go straight to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has, has been uh, amenable to this. Yeah, yeah. But I actually think congressional Democrats may also want the speedy resolution uh, of some of these issues as well. Because oh, I, th- I feel yes. like... Because I feel like when it comes to things like congressional subpoenas and, and basic congressional oversight, that the administration's approach is one of delay, 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 make them take us to court. Okay, we lose in the district court. Well, we're going to appeal to the D.C. Circuit. Okay, then we're going to appeal to the Supreme Court. And this is all time-consuming. Even when you get expedited decision-making in an appellate court, you're still talking about... Uh, a good amount of time, a good yeah. amount of time. And, and, you know, it seems to me like this is probably the wrong time for the court to be retreating from this role, but that seems to be um, where the tea leaves indicate that things are going. So, But as you know, anything can happen. Anything can happen. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of watching the court, as Nancy was mentioning to us. You know, a lot of times you think, Things are going to happen, and you know it's easy to predict. Well, he's the conservative justice; of course, he's going to go this way, or he's the liberal; he's going to go this way, and and uh, not always, not always, not always. Um, so I think that this wraps up our maiden episode of D of uh, <laughs> I was about to say DCTBD of <laughs> Scotus Pod. There is one thing I wanted to do though before oh, we before we end. I want to. Um, communicate with our with our uh, listeners and I want to um, raise a question raise a question with them one thing that I have agreed with with Trump is I thought it was a real smart idea to have a list of Supreme Court potential Supreme Court nominees before he went into office now I don't I know that the reason he did it was to lock down his uh, his base right and I don't, I don't agree with that. But I always thought that any president should know exactly who the next Supreme Court justice is going to be. He should no know. He should know. There's no way that he should have to uh, spend a, a month or, t- or two months thinking about it and interviewing a gazillion people. Before he even goes into office, he should know the people. Should, now, Trump agree has more. a list. It's Federalist uh, approved list. Federalist Society. Fe- yeah. Federalist Society approved list. I was wondering... If the de- if a Democrat were to win, who should be on his or her list? Now, is this a Democrat with a Democratic Supreme uh, Senate or with a Republican Senate? Because that may be those are different animals. Let's say with a Democrat Senate, the, the same way that uh, Trump yeah. has it. So, I'm going to ask our viewers, listeners. our listeners, excuse me, listeners, to um, send me names of of judges or academics or lawyers who they think would be appropriate Supreme Court nominees. And I want them to give me reasons why they think they would be Supreme Court, good Supreme Court nominees. Mm -hmm. So just to remind people, you can give us those answers at at SCOTUSpod on Twitter. You can search Facebook for SCOTUSpod. You can also email us, SCOTUSpod at gmail.com. Uh, let us know who should President Buttigieg nominate. No? Klobuchar. <laughs> okay. Who should President Klobuchar nominate to the Supreme Court should she 
be so fortunate as to <laughs> prevail. Be prevail in 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 a general election against President Trump. This also assumes that President Trump leaves office peacefully, <laughs> which may be too much of an assumption. But at any rate, I think that that uh, that closes it out for us here today, Sandy. This is a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to doing this again. It's too bad we won't be uh, sitting across from each other uh, most days, but hopefully we can we can we can make this happen. Well, Ian, it's been a pleasure being here with you. Indeed, indeed. Thank you, Panama. Thank you, Hardcast Media, for putting this on and helping us get this up and running and get this out to you so that y'all can enjoy it. And uh, we will see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.